So then the next thing that I want to say is that the kingdom of God has tenses in it. In the Old Testament, there's a panorama. You see everything all in one go. And so in passages like Isaiah 11, the chapter can begin by saying that, that, uh, that Jesus is coming, he'll be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, he'll be anointed with the Spirit. But by the end of the chapter, that the lion is laying down with the wolf, you're moving from the birth of Jesus all the way to the end of history, all in one vision. And uh, that's typical of the Old Testament. You get everything all in one go. Each vision is dealing with a panorama. It's as though every prophecy is starting from where you are there and extending into the final uh, future of the history of the kingdom. You're going right the way to the end in the, in the vision of what's coming. But in the unfolding, as, as the New Testament comes and Jesus comes and says, well, the kingdom is here, that, that the, the stages are, as it were, beginning to unfold, though they don't completely unfold. You remember that the disciples came to Jesus and they said to Jesus after the resurrection, they said to him, will you at this time restore the kingdom unto Israel? And Jesus answered them, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. He would not deal with any kind of time sequence. Although he did say how the kingdom would come. He, he said, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons, but you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. He wouldn't deal with the chronology of the kingdom, but he, would, he, do, he did say what would be the power by which the kingdom comes, which is the power of the Holy Spirit. So the, the times and the seasons are not given to us. And we're still in a similar position to people in the first century, as we look at prophecies in Scripture, um, you have things that seem to contradict themselves, just as the, Old Test- just as the first century, reading the Old Testament, could, re- could read prophecies about the Messiah coming in glory and the Messiah suffering, and they didn't know how it all fitted together. Prophecy works like that. You don't get a kind of history in advance. You can't write the story of what's going to happen. And people who try to do that always get it wrong. You get these prophetic guys who say, well, Russia's going to invade Germany and Israel's going to do this and this and this and this. They always get it wrong. As long as you live long enough, you can, you can, uh, a few years later, you can see how wrong they were. They always get it wrong. You cannot write history before it happens. And prophecy does not enable us to do that. And so we're in the same position as the people in the first century. There are prophecies in scripture which we cannot reconcile. We, we're told evil men will wax worse and worse. We're, we're told an antichrist will come. We're also told that all nations will be saved and Israel will get saved. And that will lead to worldwide revival, life from the dead. You may say, how do all those things fit together? The answer is we have no idea. Don't even try and fit them together. Just take everything that's there. There's a warning that uh, evil days will come, evil men will wax worse and worse, says the King James Version and uh, Antichrist will come, whatever that means. We, we do not know how these things work out. And you see, as history goes forward, you, you recognize things, think, oh yeah, this, this is what the Bible said, and, and you recognize things as they come. But um, so we are warned that conflict will intensify. That's all over the New Testament, surely. We're also told the story will be a story of success. All nations will be won, all nations will be reached. Israel will be saved. One day Israel will come back. And if the falling away of Israel led to worldwide reconciliation, what will their coming back in mean? But life from the dead, Romans chapter 11, verses 12 and verse 15. So we're given these, these varied prophecies, which you can't always fit together completely, and um, we shouldn't even try. Just believe everything and let the Lord work it out in its times and its seasons. But... Um, but the kingdom, even from the point of view of the first century, the kingdom of God has got tenses. And so the Bible says that the kingdom of God is here. If I, by the Spirit of God, cast out demons, cast out Beelzebub, then the kingdom of God is, is upon you, it's here, it's arrived, I am the king and I've come, the kingdom's at hand. The kingdom has come. The Bible also says the kingdom is coming. It's like a leaven in, you put a, a, a bit of yeast into the oven and it's got leaven or yeast in it and, and the thing begins to swell and grow and it becomes a big loaf of bread. 
the kingdom of God's like leaven, which grows and swells and becomes bigger and bigger. The kingdom of God's like planting a seed, and it's a tiny, tiny thing, but it grows into a great tree, and the birds of the air put their nests in the trees. There are these pictures of the kingdom of God coming and filling the world and, and, uh, and uh, affecting world history. And then the kingdom of God will come. One day Jesus will come and the king will come and the kingdom will come in its final phase. And passages like Matthew 25 and so on speak of the kingdom of God coming. The righteous shine in the kingdom that's yet to come. Matthew 25 speaks of the final coming of the king in the last day, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then, then he will sit on his glorious throne and the kingdom reaches its final phase and he sits upon his throne in the, in the last uh, day and he says to those on his right hand side, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom. The kingdom comes in a final way in the second coming of Jesus. So the kingdom of God has come, the kingdom of God is coming, and the kingdom of God will come. All three things are said in the New Testament. And incidentally, anything that's connected with salvation has the same three tenses in it. The Bible can say that we are saved. By grace you are saved. The Bible can say, to us who are being saved... Jesus is the wisdom and power of God. The Bible can say, he who endures to the end shall be saved. The same three tenses are there with regard to salvation. We have been saved, we are being saved, we shall be saved. Those three tenses explain a lot of, a lot of questions you might have will, will come clear if you, if you keep those three tenses in mind. Same thing is true of a, word, of a phrase like eternal life. When you believe in Jesus... You put your faith in Jesus and you are given eternal life. But Paul could say to Timothy, Timothy, lay hold of eternal life. And also we can, we can say the, the sinners go into everlasting fire and uh, the righteous go into eternal life. We have got eternal life. We are laying hold of eternal life. We shall be given eternal life. The same three things are said. Anything which, which connects with salvation which is a way of describing salvation has got three tenses in it. <coughs> and the three tenses are not the same, not the same thing. When we say that salvation, we have got salvation, we are saved, we're speaking of justification, justified, we're, we're righteous in the eyes of God, we'll never be more righteous, we're already totally righteous in the eyes of God. We're thinking of being born again. We'll never be more born again than we are already. We've got it. It's there. We are the children of God. We've got sonship. We've got adoption. We've got justification. We've got those things. We'll never lose them. We've been given them. They're in the past tense. We've got it. We are saved. And the Bible says that we are being saved. It's referring to our sanctification, our growing in grace, our breaking the power of sin, our, our, our growing in maturity, we are being saved. We're getting more and more conformed to the image of Jesus, God's Son. When the Bible says, he who endures to the end shall be saved, it's referring to our reward, our final reward where Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. It's our final reward. The three things are a bit different. And um, the picture language of the New Testament is the same. When you think of the, the pictures that are used, think of the picture of a building. Jesus is the foundation. No other foundation can be laid, but that which has been laid, finished. But now the church is being built up to be a holy temple in the Lord. And in the last day, it'll be a dwelling place of the Spirit. It has been built, it is being built. One day, the Lord will move in in a greater way than ever. Or think of um, the imagery, the language of running a race. We are qualified to run a race. We are put into a race. And then we have to run the race. 
and then we win the prize. Again, three things. We're qualified to be in the race, we run the race, and we get the prize. Three things. Or we lay a foundation, we build the building, and then we move in. Three things. It's always always put in a, in a triple way. Or think of it in terms of marriage. We are engaged. The marriage preparations are going on. We're being washed and cleansed and beautified, ready for the, the marriage day. And one day the marriage will be consummated and come to its completion. Again, the three things. It's always those three stages. And that solves a, a number of problems for you. It, 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 it solves a lot of problems with regard to um, whether you can lose your salvation. Because you see, you can't lose stage one. No other, no other foundation can be laid without that which is laid. It's finished. What's going to be judged in the judgment day is not the foundation, but what's going up upon the foundation. The foundation is fixed. No, no one's going to be judged in judgment day as to whether they believe or not. You're through it already. You're justified. That's gone. One gets judged in judgment day. It's not the first stage, but the second and the third. Not even the third, but the second. When the Bible says, he who endures to the end shall be saved, it's not saying he who endures to the end shall get born again, or he who endures to the end gets justified, or he who endures to the end becomes a child of God. It's not dealing with that. And you've got that. That's not even in dispute. No, it's saying he who endures to the end gets Jesus to say, well done, you get to the final stage. When we say things like once saved, always saved, we mean once justified, always justified, or once born again, always born again, or once a child of God, always a child of God. We don't mean once born again, inevitably rewarded. We do not mean that. You say, can you lose your salvation? I will ask the question, I will say no, but then if I'm a bit more fussy and detailed, I'll say, well, what do you mean? Do you mean that you inevitably you're going to get to your final reward? The answer is no. It means different things according to what tense you're thinking about. So it will help you, it will clarify those things. When the Bible is talking about things which cannot be lost, it's always dealing with stage number one. Your justification. There's no place in Scripture where you're ever told, if you do those things, you'll be finally condemned. There's no warning like that in Scripture. If you do such things, you will lose your new birth. There's no such thing as that in Scripture. If you do those things, you'll, never be a, you're not, you'll cease to be a child of God. Those warnings do not come in Scripture. The warnings in Scripture are, those who do such things shall not, future tense, shall not inherit the kingdom. You'll be missing something of the life of the kingdom if you commit various sins. It's not dealing with your foundation. It's dealing with what you're building upon the foundation. Now what the foundation can be laid, it's laid, it's finished. Justification is finished. You're, you're, you're in heaven already. Those, those who are justified, you rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You're there already. You're, you're already seated in the heavenly place. You're not trying to get to heaven. You're there in, in heaven already. You're, you're, you're a member of the kingdom. You're not going to lose anything of, of your foundational position. But now you need to lay hold of eternal life. Now you need to inherit the kingdom. Now you need to come into all that God is wanting to give you. You see, the founda- it's only the foundation that can't be lost. Now you start getting involved in laying hold of eternal life, as, as Paul says to Timothy. And so there's such a thing as inheriting the kingdom. And uh, we can think about that. So the kingdom has tenses to it. It will help us in connection with eternal security. It's stage number one, which is secure. we've not got to our reward yet. It's not automatic that we grow in grace. We still have to be sanctified. We still have to inherit the purpose of God through our lives. We still have to build upon the foundation. We have to lay hold of the kingdom, which is mainly a question of hearing God. I'm I'm struggling for time because this is such a big subject. I, I, I will come back to this, I expect, tomorrow. But you see, Jesus says things like this. He says, In the parables of the kingdom, he says things like this, He he that has ears to hear, let him hear. Or he'll he'll say things like this, To you, Mark chapter 4, Matthew chapter 13, To you is given the mystery of the kingdom. Now, why is it a mystery? Well, because it's not yet obvious and visible yet. The whole world is not seeing the kingdom of God as yet. It's, It's not 
so obvious that every knee bows and every tongue confesses. That day's not yet come. It, it is the kingdom there in a mystery. It is the kingdom there, as it were, hidden. We, we know about it. To you is given the mystery of the kingdom. The world doesn't see it yet, but, but you, you do see it. Mind you, it is still a mystery. And Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's, it's a bit like this. Imagine that I um, give you a recipe for cooking a meal. I come to one of you ladies and I give you a recipe for cooking a nice meal for your family. But it's, it's a kind of secret recipe. Nobody, nobody uh, knows about it. I've got this kind of a hidden recipe like, like Coca-Cola. I've got this kind of hidden recipe that nobody knows about. And I give it to you and I say that I'm, I'm giving you this, this, this recipe for this, for this wonderful meal. Mind you, it's in an envelope and it's very secret and the envelope is sealed and I'm giving it to you. Okay, you, you've now been given the recipe, but, it, but the story's not over yet. You've still got to uh, uh, open the envelope, open it up, take it out, read it and start cooking. The fact that you've been given the mystery is not, as it were, automatic. You still have to undo it and, and, uh, and start cooking and, and start using it. It is given to you, but you've still got to take it out and use it, and as it were, get it moving. And Jesus, in his parables, he'll say things like this. He who has ears to hear. You, you, you've got ears. You've been given, you've given the possibility of hearing God. But uh, other people, they don't even have ears, but you do. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The fact that you've got ears does not mean that you're listening right now. You've got to, as it were, unfold the mystery. You've got to, in, you've got to get into the mystery. You've got to hear God. And, and it's mainly a matter of hearing. That's why Jesus in the various parables will say, did you ever notice this? That the parable of the sower is the key to all of the parables. So if, you, if you get this parable, says Jesus, you, you'll understand all of them. The parable of the sower is the key to all of Jesus' parables. And the parable of the sower is about hearing. Jesus sows the seed. Some people just don't hear him at all. Some people seem to hear, but actually they've not really heard. These, these, they've not really heard. These have no roots. Nothing really went in. Others do hear, but what they hear gets strangled. It doesn't produce anything. Some not only hear, but they, they hear properly and they apply and it doesn't get strangled. Different types of hearing. You see, there are three types of people. There are people who don't have ears. You go out into the world and you try to preach the gospel and some people don't hear one word that you're saying. They are totally incapable of, of taking in what you're saying. They don't even have ears. You can talk about that they need, they need a saviour, they don't even hear you. You can say, well, you're really a sinner. They, don't have, they have no ability of hearing what you're saying. They have the slightest idea of what you're talking about. They don't have ears to hear. When you're born again, you're given a pair of ears. You're given the ability to hear God. Incidentally, you're given everything. You're able to touch the Lord. You're able to see the Lord. You're even able to rejoice in the sweetness of his fragrance. You're given spiritual senses when you're born again. Ears and eyes and nose and touch and everything. You're given spiritual senses when you're born again. You're able to hear. You're able to see spiritually. You're given a set of senses by which to know God when you're saved. He who has ears to hear. Not everybody does have ears. Some people don't even have ears at all. But if you do have ears, well, that's wonderful. You're able to hear God. Ah, oh, yes, but it's not automatic. Now you've got ears, well, that's great, but, but now start listening. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Some people have, don't have ears. Some people have ears but don't hear. And some people have ears but they do hear. And the secret of the kingdom is to have ears to hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. There's the secret of the kingdom and of inheriting the kingship of God in your life is to be able to hear God day by day. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let him actually hear what God is saying. 
because you're not laying hold of the kingdom unless you're here. That's, that's the teaching of Scripture. So there, is, there are tenses, and the, the kingdom of God is available now. It's here. It's, it's here. Uh, we, we can lay hold of God, but it's secret. It's a mystery of the kingdom. The world's not seeing it yet. They will do one day. One day every knee will bow. One day every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord. But um, that kingdom has come, but it's come in a mystery. It's come in a hidden way. It's, it's, not, it's not that every eye shall see or every, every ear can hear or every knee shall bow. It's there in a hidden way. We see now what one day everybody will see. One day every knee will bow. Our knee bows now. One day every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. We're confessing he's the Lord now. The Christian is a person who confesses now what one day everybody will confess. We have the kingdom in a mystery. We see something to you is given the mystery of the kingdom. Incidentally, I ought to say somewhere, and this is the place to say it, there is no difference between kingdom and salvation. Don't, don't draw a distinction between kingdom and salvation. I, I say that for this reason. You get people who say something like this. They say, well, you know, so you, all you Bible-believing preachers, you're always preaching salvation. What we need is the message of the kingdom. I'm sure you've heard people say things like that. We, we don't need all this talk about salvation. We need the message of the kingdom. Well, normally what they mean is we need healing miracles. We need to pray for the sick and the kingdom comes and miracles take place and all these things. We don't want all this talk about salvation. I know the world's not going to listen to salvation. We need the world to be impressed with the miracles. We need to preach the, 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 the gospel of the kingdom. And they talk as though salvation and the kingdom are two different things. So that's a mistake. In fact, you notice it in my verse, the verse I started with. Jesus came into Galilee, says Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, saying the time of the, is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come. Repent and believe in the gospel. You notice there's no difference between the kingdom and the gospel. It's the same thing. The kingdom has come, believe in the good news. It's the good news, it's the kingdom, it's the same thing. There's no difference between salvation and the kingdom. And you may say, well, why is it that Jesus talked about the kingdom, but the rest of the gospel of the Bible talks about salvation? Well, the answer is this, that uh, Israel was a kingdom, God's kingdom, and so the gospel was preached to the, in Old Testament times in, in the language of kingdom. But uh, when the gospel went out into the world, it was really not appropriate that they should use the word kingdom because the Greeks and the Romans and all these empires, they had their kingdoms anyway. So, so you, you go to a kingdom and say, well, the kingdom's coming, it's sort of rebelling against the government. It, it, there's no way in which you should use a word like that when you're going outside of Israel. The Gentile world was not looking for kingdoms. They had their kingdoms. They had their, their, their pagan empires ruling everywhere. They had their kingdoms. They, did, they, weren't look, they were not looking for a kingdom. What they were looking for was salvation. Looking to be rescued from sin and death and judgment and darkness and hopelessness and despair. And uh, there's no hope in the philosophers. Most of the philosophers ended up committing suicide. They're not looking for a kingdom, but they are looking for salvation. And so the preachers switched the language. And uh, there's no difference. They switch the language because they're moving outside of the Jewish world into the Gentile world. So they use vocabulary appropriate for the Gentile world, not vocabulary appropriate for the Jewish world. But it's the same thing. And uh, Paul can say things like, you've, you've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. He could use the word kingdom when he wants to, but not very much because, because he's preaching to Rome and to, and to Ephesus and these Greek cities. So there's a change of vocabulary, but it's not a change of message. It's not preaching a different message. There's not two gospels. There's only one gospel. And you can preach the gospel in, in different ways. You can, you can, you can say you're, you're, you're hopeless. You need someone to rule. You need someone to help you. You need someone to be a, a power in your life. You need kingly royal power to rescue you and save you. That's one way of preaching the gospel. Another way of preaching the gospel is you're in trouble, you're in bondage, you're in a prison, you need to be rescued, you need to, you need to escape, you need to be saved from where you are. It's the same message, just put in different language. And you can put it in half a dozen other ways. There are different ways of preaching the gospel. So kingdom language, God coming in to rule over you, and salvation language, God coming in to rescue you, it's the same thing, just put in different pictures and different language. And uh, so don't let people... 
hinder you from preaching salvation by saying, you don't need salvation anymore, you need the gospel of the kingdom. Don't, don't, don't listen to that, because that's talking as though there's two gospels. And uh, I'm not against miracles, but um, in, in, the, in the movement of history, things do swing like a pendulum. And I was saved as a teenager in the early 60s and late 50s, Nobody believed in miracles. And uh, persuading people that there was any kind of dynamic power of God there was a bit difficult. Today it's the other way around. Now people want nothing but miracles. They go from one extreme to the other. This is the way history goes. You, you, you first go, you go to one extreme and then you react and go to the other extreme. The position is always somewhere in the middle. And uh, over the last half a century, we've gone from deism, which is just believing that God's out there somewhere and never, never touches us, to a kind of um, miracles cult, where everything is to be miracles, and it becomes cultic. Now, I'll come to that in another, from another angle in a moment. So, um, don't be confused by the trans- transformation of language. But then this matter of, of um, tenses does help us also in this respect, in that you need to see that the kingdom is coming. It has not come perfectly. The resurrection of the body is not yet come. We are waiting for the redemption of our body, Romans chapter 8. The kingdom's not visible, it's not glorious in a way that every every eye can just see that, that the gospel is true. No, the final kingdom has not yet come. And again, this is very important because people, as it were, swing from one extreme to the other. You, you may know that in America... There is, there is what is called a Kingdom Now movement. You've heard that, Bill Johnson and various people in the States. They're good people. I'm not wanting to uh, attack them. Uh, they're, they're good people. And I don't like attacking my friends. But, um, but you mustn't exaggerate. The Kingdom has not come fully. It is still to come. Don't, don't want heavenly glory right now. Don't want your resurrection body right now. Don't think you can take your healing right now. You, you can in heaven, in heaven, and you get sick in heaven, which you won't, you won't do, but if you do, you can take your healing straight away. There can be no sickness in heaven. You'll have final prosperity, final glory, a perfect body, everything you want in the heavenly kingdom, you'll have it. But don't switch it all on now. Now we're sort of uh, in between. The kingdom is coming. Don't think you can... You can uh, just take the final glory. You may want to say to me, well, there's healing in the atonement. Jesus has died for all of our diseases. That's true, that's true. Actually, there's everything in the atonement. There's the resurrection body in the atonement. There's final glory in every blessing that you are ever going to get. It has been bought by the blood of Christ. There is everything in the cross. There is total restoration. There is final glory. There's a new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Every single blessing God's ever going to give you. He died for the reconciliation of all things. Colossians 1.20. He bought the entire universe. He's not only redeeming our souls, he's redeeming the entire universe by his blood upon the cross. He paid the price for the reconciliation of all things. But, that doesn't mean you can switch it on. It doesn't mean you can say, I'll have my resurrection body now. I'm taking it by faith. No, no, the fact that it's been bought now does not mean you can claim it now. It comes in the timing of God. So you can't say, well, he's healing in the atonement, I'll have it now. No, no, you can't do that. And this um, habit of, uh, as it were, wanting too much of the kingdom now, it's not a new thing. It, it, was, it was in Bible times. It's Paul's point in... 1 Corinthians 4. The Corinthians were doing this. The very essence of all the things that were going on in Corinth is that they're claiming too much of final glory immediately. And this is what Paul says. Paul, Paul, Paul is sarcastic about it. He says, well, you, you, you Corinthians, you, you seem to have everything. And uh, you're claiming everything already. You have all that you want. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse uh, 8. Already you have everything you want. Already you have become rich. You talk about prosperity. You've got it. You, you're, you're claiming prosperity. You've become rich already. Already, already you've become kings. You've got the kingdom now. You're reigning in Christ. Well, congratulations. Without, without us, you, you've got this final glory. 
would that you did reign so that we might reign with you. He's being sarcastic. You Corinthians, you reckon you're in glory already. Congratulations, I wish we could have it. Maybe, maybe you could lay hands on us. He's, he's being sarcastic about these Corinthians who are claiming kingdom now. We've got, we've got the final glory. And Paul says, no, no, actually, it's not true. There's suffering in this life. God has exhibited us apostles. We, we, are, we are the leaders of the church, apostles. He's exhibited us apostles as last of all, as people sentenced to death. We've become a spectacle to the world. The world's not thinking how marvellous we are. They are laughing at us. We, we, we are fools for Christ's sake. They're not saying how powerful we are. They're, they're ridiculing us. We, we are weak. You, you Corinthians, you're strong. You see how Paul's being sarcastic. You, you strong guys. Well, congratulations, actually. We apostles, we're quite weak, actually. You're held in honour. We're in dispute. We're hungry and thirsty. You, you reckon Christians do well. No, they never get hungry. No, no. Well, we apostles, we're hungry, we're thirsty. We're buffeted, we're labouring, we're, we're reviled, we're slandered. We have become, and we, and we are still, you notice that phrase, we are right now, we've not got the glory yet, we are still the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. You see what Paul's arguing against? He's arguing against those who are claiming too much of glory before they get there. And this, and this is the teaching. We are to be inheriting the kingdom, but um, don't try and get to your final glory. Don't think you can switch on prosperity. Maybe you can. God, God's, God's got everything in his hands. He, he can make you rich tomorrow morning. But don't think you can just claim it. Don't, don't deny miracles. But don't say, no, I'm going to get my miracle now today. You can't do that either. It, it's somewhere in between. God can do anything at all points. When you're sick, you go to God. When you're poor, you go to God. When you despise, you go to God and see what he will do for you. He may just answer your prayers. He may not. He may say, no, I'm going to leave you for a while. You, you, you have to wait till you get to heaven. Paul had a thorn in the flesh and he prayed that God would take it away and God ignored him. Jesus ignored him. And so he prayed again, Lord, please, please, take this thorn in the flesh away. And he got no answer. And he prayed the third time. These, I believe, are times of prayer. He went to the Lord in the third time of prayer. And for a third time, he said, Lord, please take this thorn in the flesh away. And this time he did get an answer. The answer was no. Now. But my grace is sufficient for you. He could not get the kingdom. He could not take the final kingdom in advance, and nor can you. Um, so you have to have a kind of middle position in these things. And uh, in the age in which we live, it's, it, we're in a tricky situation because the old world of 50 years ago believed in nothing. The new world that's, that's here now is believing in everything. The, the real position is somewhere in the middle. Don't go back to deism where God just is in the sky somewhere and you, and you have no contact with God. That's a kind of deism. Old evangelicals were like that. Don't go back and be an old-style evangelical. Those guys were too influenced by scientific skepticism. But don't go to the other extreme, where you're acting as though you're in heaven tomorrow morning and you can switch everything on. You can't. I've known many, many people who tried. I've known people who claim to raise the dead. If one of your family dies, said one preacher I know, don't, don't, if your family dies, don't take him to the mortuary, bring him to me, I'll raise him from the dead. Jesus said, raise the dead, I'll do it for you. You know, I believe in Jesus, the kingdom's come, believe him to me. He never raised anybody and today he's dead. He died, he died, he couldn't even keep himself alive. You, you know, no, you can't do it, you can't do it. I'll claim my healing. How many people have claimed their healing but, but they're in trouble? Or they have to pretend, they have to start pretending a miracle took place. Nobody ever has to persuade anybody about miracles in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the authorities say, there's a notable miracle that's taken place, we cannot deny, only let's charge them to preach no more in the name of this Jesus. They, the Christians are not persuading somebody that the miracle took place. They're saying, well, you know, this, this blind man, he's been there for 40 years, uh, he's been healed and we can't deny it. Let's just tell them to stop, stop this preaching. No one's persuading them that a miracle took place, they know. You don't have to persuade people that a miracle's taken place. And if you do, well, what's the point of it? The whole thing is dubious. No, no, be open to God. 
miracles take place. People are raised from the dead sometimes. I've known about two resurrections in the course of my life from, from someone who's dead. Only two. That's, that's not once every weekend. So that, that's, that's twice, that's twice, that's, that's sort of four times a century. Now these things can happen and they do happen. But don't think you can switch them on next Sunday. They're in the hands of God. When you're sick, go to God. And he might do anything. He may say, I'm not going to do this for you. He always could, but it doesn't mean he always will. It's in his hands. It's not in your control. It's in his hands. The kingdom is here, but it's not the final glory yet. You are waiting for the resurrection of the body. You're waiting for the day when you'll not be able to, to sin again. I remember a lady coming to see me once. Jane Wood, you remember her name. She came to see me. She said, Pastor, is there any experience we can have such that we'll never sin again? And I said, yeah, there is. It's called dying. (laughs) (laughs) When you die, you'll never sin again. But meanwhile, to the day you die, you will have a battle. Final final perfection is not coming just yet. The moment you see Jesus, you'll never sin again. You'll never be sick again. There'll be no doctors in heaven. I don't mean no doctors will get to heaven, I just mean they won't be doctors when they get to heaven. <laughs> and same is true of preachers. There'll be no preachers in heaven either. I'm sorry about that, but it's true. You won't need doctors in heaven, you won't need preachers in heaven. You won't have the gift of tongues in heaven. You'll have final glory. But you can't switch it on now. You can get, and, you, and this is what a miracle is, a miracle is a flash of glory. A miracle is a little bit of glory coming forward and being given to you now. You remember what... Um, Jesus said to Martha and Mary, when, when Martha and Mary had said, well, you know, I know he'll be raised at the last day, he'll get the final resurrection, Jesus said, well, actually, I am the resurrection. The, that person who raises the dead at the last day, that's me. I am the resurrection, and I'm here now. I can do it now. Just, just watch. Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. And there was a flash of final glory now. Every miracle is a flash of final glory now. But they don't happen, you can't just switch them on. It doesn't happen at will. No, no, no gift of the Spirit acts at will. You can't even, I can't guarantee preaching in the power of the Spirit on Sunday. I can pray that I will, I can't switch it on. Only God can give power. And every preacher knows what it's like to preach in power, and he says to himself, oh, I'll preach that way next Sunday. Only next Sunday is a disaster. And every preacher knows it the other way around. He feels so hopeless, he feels he has no ability to preach whatsoever, he's sick, he's ill, he's lost his voice, and he thinks this is hopeless, I better just quit. And that day is the best Sunday he ever has in his life. You're under the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit. You can be very confident in yourself and you're allowed to fall flat on your face. You can feel very powerless and your strength is made perfect in weakness. It's the sovereignty of God that counts. So we're in between, we're not in the final kingdom We've already got our status, and meanwhile we are inheriting the kingdom. So then how do we, just to try to make this morning practical then, very practical, how do we lay hold of the kingdom? Well, there's a lot I could say, but let me just, uh, as we come to to an end, let me say, you begin by laying hold of the life of the kingdom. There There is a life that we are able to live. And by the life, I mean the actual character, the actual way in which we live. The Sermon on the Mount is all about the kingdom. Remember, Jesus begins that Sermon on the Mount. He he leaves the crowds, seeing seeing the crowds, it says. He goes up into this, this hillside where there's a plain upon the top, and he calls his disciples, and he says to them, it's to the disciples, it's not to the whole world, it's to the disciples. And he's describing the life of the kingdom that they may enter into. And he begins by just describing it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom. That's where he starts. He's describing the life of the kingdom. If you want to inherit the kingdom, don't say, well, I'm going to try and do some miracles. I'm going to raise the dead. Maybe, maybe you can, but down the road, don't begin there. Begin with the Sermon on the Mount. Begin with the life. Because if you really do have power, you really do have the power of the kingdom at work in your life, then you'll be able to live the godly life. You've got the power of the kingdom. So Jesus begins by describing the lifestyle of the kingdom. 
the lifestyle of the person who's been brought into the kingdom and now he's laying hold of the kingdom and, he, and, and the power of God is operating in his life and he's able to live in a certain way. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's where you begin. You begin by saying, I've got nothing. God just has to work in me, otherwise I'm hopeless. Blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom. Those who are utterly dependent upon God's power, they know they've got nothing. There's the place where the kingdom is working. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And it goes on working it out. You, you know it, I'm sure. Blessed are those who, who mourn. What do they mourn over? They mourn because they want more of the kingdom to come. What they're mourning about is the kingdom sort of begun, but that they want more of the kingdom. They're not totally happy. They're not as blissful as they can be because there's more of the kingdom they want. And so they, so they're, in a sense, they're, they're mourning. Not that they're not happy. They're not just people who are happy when they're miserable. They're, they're, they're wanting more of the kingdom. That's the point of that reference to mourning. And so that's their character. And if you want to show that the power of the king is at work in our lives, blessed are the meek, those who don't defend themselves, for they shall inherit the earth. You'll, 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 you'll get everything if you don't even fight for it too much. Blessed are the meek. Those, those who don't fight for themselves, God will fight for them. They'll inherit the whole world. And I believe that means they inherit the world even now. I don't think it really means, just means that they get to final glory. That is true. But I believe it means we start enjoying God's world now. Remember, Paul says, having nothing but possessing all things. There's a sense in which you have everything. All things are you, whether poor people are arguing about preachers. Should I listen to this preacher or that preacher, Paul or Apollos or Cephas? Paul says, have the whole lot. If Paul is yours, Cephas is yours, all things are yours. Paul or Apollos or Cephas, all things, life, death, things present, things death, all things are yours. You're, you're enjoying the whole universe because you belong to Jesus and Jesus belongs to God. All things are yours. You're inheriting the earth even now. In a spiritual way, you're not, you're not a, a millionaire just yet but you're inheriting blessing here in this world. You're inheriting the earth even now. You've got a foretaste of it because you're in the kingdom. You're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You're, you're merciful, you're pure, and you get persecuted. And you think, well, that's a sign that I'm being defeated. Oh, no, the opposite. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom. He brings the kingdom theme back in again. The mark that you are in the kingdom is that the world does not like it. Once again, it's a mark that you're in the kingdom. And he works it all out. He actually says things like this. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll, you'll not even be, en- you will never enter the kingdom. He's not talking about how you get saved. He's not talking about uh, your initial coming into the kingdom. You're already born again. You've already entered the kingdom in that sense. But if you want to... Uh, inherit the kingdom, you've got to get, to get to a level of righteousness which is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees knew. Now, what was their righteousness like? Well, they were moral. The, uh, the Pharisees said, no, we don't, we don't lie or steal or commit adultery. We don't worship any other god. They were moral. They were upright. They were clean on the outside. But they were not pure in heart. Jesus says, you're like a cup. It's washed on the outside, but inside is full of dead men's bones. You're like a whitewashed tomb. In other words, you can be moral on the outside without being clean on the inside. And Jesus says, unless, unless you get beyond these, these Pharisees, these scribes who are so proud of the law, unless you get beyond that, you'll never enter the kingdom. You won't experience the blessings of God being king in your life until you get to a level of living for God which is beyond just the morality of the Pharisee. Then he works it out as to what it means. Under the law, don't kill. But I'm telling you, don't even get angry. Under the law, don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, says Jesus, keep clean within. Under the law, if you divorce somebody, well, make sure she gets a piece of paper so that she knows where she stands. To you, don't even get divorced at all. Unless you really have to. He, he does have a one exception clause. You, you, under the law, take your oaths in the name of Yahweh. And I'm not saying that, says Jesus. I'm telling you, don't even take an oath at all. That's talk the truth all the time. 
when you swear, I swear this is truth, that means all the other times, maybe it's not so, not, not so much the truth. The reason why you're swearing this is true is because all the rest is not true. Otherwise you wouldn't need to swear. Jesus says, it just lets your yes be yes, your no be no. This is going higher than the law. This is going higher than Pharisees. This is the righteousness of the kingdom. The law said, an eye for an eye. If somebody injures you, don't take more than you have an entitlement to. Only an eye for an eye. Only the cost of an eye for an eye. Only the cost of this for this. Don't be so vindictive. You take more than justice demands. That was in the Mosaic law. I'm saying... Someone slaps you on the right cheek and the other. Someone wants to take your tunic, give him your whole suit. Someone says, carry my bag for a mile, go within two miles. Don't, don't even have a, a vindictive spirit. It's not a, it's not a new law. And, and you can't make a rule or a law out of it. It's dealing with the spirit. Have a spirit of generosity and, and in a mind about your rights. Under the law... You love your neighbor and you hate your enemy. You find some Amalekite, you don't even let him into the temple. You get, don't, these, don't let these enemies come into the temple of God. Under the gospel, you even love your enemies. You even pray for those who are using you badly. And so the, the Sermon on the Mount goes, goes on, you see. We need to be a people of prayer. And when we pray, we pray, your kingdom come, says Jesus. It's about the kingdom. And we build our life upon... The rock. And the Sermon on the Mount goes on that way. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, is the last uh, paragraph. You see, the key to experiencing the kingdom is the life of the kingdom. If we believe that God is in us, if we believe that God is king, if we believe that we have the power of the Spirit, if we believe that we are born again, if we believe that we are out of the kingdom of darkness and we're in the kingdom of God's dear Son, if we believe that we have died to sin, that old realm, we're out of it all together, and we're alive unto God, and we reckon ourselves to be alive unto God, if we claim this kingdom to be in us, then we lay hold of the kingdom in the way in which we live. I don't, like, I don't enjoy preaching that very much. Any preacher that preaches about godliness feels bad as he's doing it. Because nobody gets up to this. But this is, this is the standard we hold before us. And we have to hold it before ourselves no matter how humiliating it is. When you look at the scriptures, it's humiliating. You think, oh, I don't think I've got there yet. And uh, nobody can preach it without feeling guilty. But this is, this is what it says. If you sow, if you sow to the Spirit, back from the Spirit, you reap eternal life. You already got it, but when you sow to the Spirit, you reap something back and you experience the kingdom. Those who do such things, remember Paul listing various sins, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom. Surely he's not saying they won't get to heaven. You, you read those lists in Galatians, there's a very... Some big things there, witchcraft, adultery, murder, there's some big things there. But there's some little things as well. Jealousies, divisiveness, quarrelsomeness. Those who do such things will never inherit the kingdom. Do you think Paul is saying those who do such things will never get to heaven? They're not saved after all. Is that what he's saying? Hope not, otherwise none of us will get there. Now, surely he's not talking about the future. Surely he's talking about the present. If you, as it were, block the kind of life that the Lord is wanting to lead you into, you won't be inheriting the power of God in your life. Those who do such things. And it includes things like jealousy and quarrelsomeness. You may say, well, you know, supposing I've got a sort of fiery temperament, I'm always quarreling people, will I, will I never get to heaven? Well, there's hope for you yet. You know that Calvin, the great, the great John Calvin, on his deathbed, summoned, I'm glad Calvin did this, makes me feel good. The great John Calvin summoned all of the pastors of Geneva to his deathbed when he was dying. And he apologized to them that he'd always been a bit rough with them. 
You know, I'm a bit, I was been a bit severe with you. On his deathbed, he's asking forgiveness because all of his life he'd been a bit sort of tough and rough with them. Do you think Calvin didn't get to heaven after all? I mean, he was always being quarrelsome and divisive. Did he never get to heaven? Luther. I mean, he was a, people sometimes describe Luther as a volcano. You, you crossed him and he would erupt. You know, I mean, he was a, one day, one day, Calvin sent a letter to Luther about the Lord's Supper and Melanchthon, Luther's friend, wouldn't give it to Luther because he might explode in rage. <laughs> and Luther never read it. I mean, people like Wesley, they were so autocratic and domineering, upper-class, toffee-nosed Englishmen. How, how can they get to heaven? I, I don't know how they... And, and what about me and you? Are we, are we really going to get to heaven? And it's not that God's threatening us that if we do such things, we won't get to heaven. That, that's not the way Scripture works. Now, the warning is, while we're doing such things, we're not inheriting the kingdom. And these little things, things that are maybe a part of our temperament. Some people get angry very easily. Some people never get angry. Some people are born so nice and never get angry, but they're great compromisers. They're so, they're so sweet and pleasant, they never, they never take a stand on anything. You know, we, we, some people are born angry, some people are born pacifists. But uh, you have to handle your own temperament and deal with things that are your particular weaknesses, particular temptations. We're not all tempted by the same thing. We have different temperaments. And people are so nice. We have an animal nature. You ever, you ever realize that we have an animal nature? You know, you can, have, you can have two dogs in your home. My dog is so sweet and fluffy. I'm looking at Basma. She has nice, sweet, fluffy dogs. More like a cat than a dog. You do... It's so sweet and fluffy. And then you get other dogs who are sort of biting and snarling at you and they sort of snap at you as soon as you come to the front door and, and they're very sort of aggressive. You get, you get two dogs which are so different. Why, why is it you get two dogs that are so different? Well, because their animal nature is different. It's not that the quiet one's been doing a lot of praying or reading his Bible a lot. It's not that the bad one is backsliding. You know, it's, it's nothing to do with spiritual. It doesn't have any spiritual relationship with God. It's his animal nature. We have an animal nature as well. Some of us snarl by nature. Some of us are so sweet and fluffy by nature. That's not the Holy Spirit, that's your nature. The Holy Spirit enables the coward to be bold. The Holy Spirit enables the angry, fiery Calvin to control his temper. The Holy Spirit enables the oversexed guy to control himself. The Holy Spirit, these particular weaknesses in our life, the Holy Spirit enables us to go against our animal nature. You can, have a ni- you can be a nice dog or a nice cat or a nice human being by nature. Some people are so nice. Sometimes I feel like saying to people, when you're nice, it's just because you're born that way. When I'm nice, it's because it's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> if we sow to the Spirit, if we sow to the Spirit, we shall back from the Spirit, reap the blessings and the powers of the kingdom of God. And that's why the Sermon on the Mount is there. And then, no, then, then, who knows what else might happen? Then we might find that not only are there these characteristics of the godly life, that there are giftings, there are enablings, there are miracles, there are signs, there are wonders. There's certainly a calling upon our life. The Lord will enable us, whatever our calling is, he will enable us to fulfill that calling. The powers of the kingdom will be present in our life. If I, by the Spirit of God, cast out Beelzebub to Jesus, then the the Spirit of God has come upon you. And the same thing can happen with us. We can have giftings of speaking, of power, of hospitality, of mercy, of niceness, of kindness, of evangelism. The giftings, giftings come from God and they are the powers of the kingdom. Don't begin with the giftings. Begin with the character. Don't begin with the miracles. Begin with the greatest miracle of all, which is the new birth. The greatest miracle of all is being born again. There's no miracle bigger than that. Every Christian is a miracle. Every Christian has something which comes from above. Every Christian has something which he could not possibly have by nature. He's born again by the Spirit. That which is of the Spirit, that which is born from above, that which is born of the Spirit. That's of the flesh, that's just flesh. Anything you've got by nature is still just natural, it's of the flesh. 
we are born of the Spirit. And we come into the kingdom and Jesus becomes our king, not only our saviour, but our king. And we're in the kingdom. But we have to live the life of the kingdom. And unless our righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, we will not enter, not, not get to heaven, but not enter into this powerful working of God in our lives. And not enter the kingdom in that sense. And there'll be troubles and difficulties, though through, by means of, Acts chapter 14, verse 22, by means of many tribulations, we inherit the kingdom. The point that makes us step into the power of God more than anything else is when you have some great trouble, some great tribulation, something which really as you, hits you and knocks you down, and you go on believing, you trust in God, and, and you count it all joy that you're falling into various trials and troubles, and you persist in faith, you go on believing, and by means of, it's the actual tribulation itself which brings the blessing, by means of many tribulations, you enter the kingdom. You inherit the kingdom. Don't be too low where you deny that God can do anything. You have a, a God that's out there somewhere not doing anything. Don't be so high that you're switching on glory before it comes. Be somewhere in the middle where you're preaching the gospel, where you believe in the power of God, and you're laying hold of eternal life, where you're exceeding the righteousness of any kind of Pharisee and God's kingdom is powerfully at work in your life. You have a calling, you have a ministry, you have giftings, having gifts that differ. Every single Christian has gifts. Having gifts that differ, let us use them. And you enter the kingdom. And God's kingdom flows through you and you're used and God's kingdom may come. Who, may, who knows what might happen in Britain? I'm not in Britain very much, I live in Kenya, but... Uh, I don't know which is better, Kenya or Britain. Kenya, everybody claims to be saved, almost. You stand up in a bank and say, praise the Lord, and somebody somewhere will say amen. It's true, it's true. Britain, we're in tough days. I don't know which is worse. I like being in Kenya, but uh, in some ways I think it's better to be in a tough situation than an easy one. A fighting for, for God, achieving something in hard days. Don't, don't be ashamed of living in Britain. These are days for serving God. Better, be, better to be in Britain in the 21st century than the 19th century. In the 19th century, everybody came to be saved. They were all hypocritical and pretending to be saved when they weren't, or, or dark secrets in their, in, in their soul. Everybody going to the state church. Who wants that sort of thing? I'd rather have some decent enemies and a gospel that stands for something. I sometimes go to India. Southern India is full of Christians. The, the, the Church of South India, North India, is full of pagan Hindus. I enjoy North India, not the South. When someone gets saved in North India, they're, they're shining for God. Better to be in a country where Muslims fight against us. Let them get saved and they'll shout, they'll shine for God as, ne as nobody ever does. They'll put us all to shame. Don't be, don't be afraid of modern Britain. Don't be scared of of the enemies that are rising against us. The more the enemies rise against us, the more the victory of God will be magnificent. The more God will vanquish his enemies. England's in a bad state, but it's not the first time in the 17-teens and the 1720s of the Jinn age. People said everybody knows now that Christianity is a fiction. It's gone. And the politicians were filthy and vile and they were proud of their immorality and all the rest of it. Uh, it, it, it people thought, well, the gospel's finished in this land. 1735, George Whitfield was baptised of the Spirit. 1738, John Wesley was baptised of the Spirit. Daniel Rowlands in Wales, Hal Harris in Wales. Within 40 years, Britain was the most Christian country in the world. The place where it was said the gospel is finished, within 40 years, it was the most Christian country in the world. It happened before and it can happen again. Our, our job is to lay foundations. Remember, remember Elijah. Before Elijah calls for the fire to fall, before the fire falls, he builds up the altar. He builds up the altar. He builds up the place of sacrifice. He, be, he builds up the place where there's sacrifice for sin. He pours water over the place to show that he's not pretending. There's no trickery going on. He's not bothered about, about imitation miracles. He, he, he rebuilds the foundation message of, of atonement and sacrifice. And then he calls for the fire to fall. That's where we are. Don't call for the fire to fall until you've built up the altar. 
build up the gospel. We're laying foundations. We're preaching the gospel. We're exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. We're laying foundations. When we've laid some foundations, we can expect the fire to fall. And maybe it will. Who knows what God might not do? God likes it when he has difficult cases. God likes it when things are all against him. God likes it when you're dead and buried. You're in the tomb. He'll raise you from the dead a couple of days later. This is our God. When our righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, we'll enter the kingdom in a greater way than ever. Let's stand and let's pray together tonight, today. Our Father, we come into your presence and I just want to pray today that we may get hold of your kingly power, your power as the king, your, your offer that we might inherit the kingdom and come into all that you've got for us as a people, as a church, as a nation, as individuals. Grant that we may see, see you sitting upon the, on the throne, the king of the universe, even now. Something that the world has not yet seen, something the world doesn't even know about. Give us ears to hear and then let us hear and respond to you and hear your word and lay hold of eternal life. Lay hold of the kingdom. Inherit what you've got for us. Please work in our life and give us this motivation to go after those who sow to the Spirit, shall back from the Spirit, reap eternal life. Teach us to lay hold of these things. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.